Hello everyone, welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons, a philosophy podcast about big topics and bite-sized pieces. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a graduate student in education at Liberty University, and with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of philosophy and English at Genesee Community College. Our topic today is death. Death is something many people fear and avoid talking about. But why? Why is death scary? Perhaps it's the unknown. Death is one of the few things every person will experience, but hasn't yet experienced, to reflect on. Perhaps it's the loss. Although life is a chaotic affair, at least you have the broadest idea of what we're in for. In death, we lose even that. Perhaps it's the religious and cultural traditions that we've been raised with, which place the time of death as the time of reckoning. All these topics are immensely interesting and possibly tell us something about what it means to be human. Please avoid the urge to skip this episode and instead embrace the unknown, and in the process, we'll discuss if you can avoid the embrace of the Grim Reaper. All right, Norm, I missed out on an opportunity. Uh, it was Valentine's Day this weekend, and instead of doing the podcast on love, we're doing it on death. <laughs> well, that's okay. We can return to love another time. That's <laughs> a little bit grim. Luckily, the uh, podcast listeners live outside of our timeline, so they will never know that, <laughs> other than the fact I just admitted it, so they might listen to it uh on during Halloween, who knows? Yeah, it would be exactly. more appropriate. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that death is a—it's a difficult topic, though. Everybody is has some form of um, interaction with it, uh, and sometimes it takes longer than you'd think. You know, sometimes that first family pet or relative or somebody doesn't die until you're a, a, an an advanced age. You know. 5, 10, 12 years old, you know, and then it changes your whole world and it scares people. And we're, we'll get into some of the reasons that that's the case. But um, I think that we're in for something that is not so much doom and gloom and more just fascinating. Yes. So Absolutely. tell us about let's start with the types of death, because there's not really um, death can mean different things based on your perspective yeah. tell us about physiological legal absolute what, what what types of death are there you just laid out a, a a number of very acutely accurate ones and it falls generally within for some philosophers three categories of animalism personism and mindism. Animalism would be the physical. When your body stops, you're dead. Uh, assuming that we're another kind of animal and the physical processes end, there it is. Thus, the, the coroner can assign the time of death and so order the doctor. Um, the personism is more of the psychological re relationships that one has with others, and you are. Well, you are gone uh, when none of those relationships exist anymore. So essentially suggesting that if you are being thought of and there's still a relationship in your mind with a person who's gone, that person who's gone hasn't gone. Uh, so you know, I think families talk about this. I certainly think about my mom a lot. She was, we just passed the anniversary, second anniversary of her passing, and 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 I laugh, I think, I hear her voice sometimes, you know. So from the psychological viewpoint, she's not entirely gone, but but of course our minds keep reinventing who that person was. And then <clears throat> the mindism itself, the mindism says when the mind's processes are done, then then it's death. So you might so in that case you might your physical body might be the heart might be beating, but there's no activity. Right. And that's kind of, in many cases, that's sort of the legal aspect of death as well. So the, there's the interesting part of this conversation is that um, based on your definition of death, it can last either far beyond your physical death or before your physical death has actually occurred. So like you're saying, if there's, um, if there's brain death, lots of times they will legally consider you dead in terms of you can't make decisions somebody else has to be responsible for your your e-states and things whereas 
as you just pointed out, there's um, the the death of the person, which can go far beyond somebody's actual death. Where, um, you know, like you were saying, your mom dies, you remember your mom, but do you remember your great great grandfather? You know, is is well now we do because we just mentioned him. Well, I, re- I remember his. I remember the 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 role, the name, but I know. Nothing about him, really. I mean, maybe right. maybe one brief so, story. So, would he be? Does that qualify him as as being personally dead, or the fact that we just mentioned him? Well, let's let's bring up an obscure character. Let's talk about um, Phineas Gage. This guy, this man, is famous for having a essentially a a steel rod shot through his head in a mining accident. Yes. He never he didn't contribute something advanced to science. You know, like. Lots of historical figures have, they did something brave or they did something intelligent. This guy, he didn't really do anything. He just experienced something. <laughs> but we remember him 150 years after his death, whatever. His story is re- repeated. And, so, yeah. So, yeah, so the fact that we remember his, does knowing his name and his story make him alive as a person? Or is it something beyond that that would qualify for that sort of life? Yeah, I, I think you've, I, I think I, I'd assert a fourth ism which would be narrativism, which picks up on the psychological personism. To the extent that Phineas Gage is a, a person we recognize in the stories we may have learned in school or wherever, stumbled upon on the internet, some aspect of him is alive because he's influencing our conversation right yeah. <laughs> okay so no obviously not physically obviously a lot not um in any of the tangible ways and yet if we go to any any writer i mean we have uh, plato's dialogues for heaven's sake and, and and we're still reading those and learning about who socrates was and what socrates is we don't really know i mean if we look at it really hard we don't no, Socrates. We know what his student said of him. Well, the same is true of a figure like Jesus Christ. We don't know Jesus Christ. He never wrote a thing. It's just like Socrates. What we know are the people who wrote of him, but what we also know, just from historically, some of these people whose books are named after them were actually not the apostles or the disciples, other people wrote using their names, but some did write, but they were in what we would call advanced age when they began to write. So what happens when you've known somebody when you were a young man and you wait till you're 70 and you start writing about that person? Right. Yeah. I mean, they've done a lot of studies on this in criminal justice where deals lots of times I, I witness reports of crimes. Um, in court are unreliable because things will be misinterpreted. But so, okay, so I think we get at the point, which is that um, there's a difference between um, somebody who personally knew somebody that passed away and then um, sort of a um, anecdotal mm-hmm. narrative thing. So how do you think that technology will change that? Let's say that by some fluke, hundreds of years from now, somebody listens to this podcast so it's not somebody writing about us. It's not even us, you know, they're actually listening to our voices or television. You see somebody on TV. Do you think that that changes it as opposed to being in writing? Would we still, would we be alive personally or is that still narrative? I think that's, that's a really interesting question, Joel. I, we have more of a sense of the whole person because we're seeing them mm. or hearing them. Oh, that's what they sounded like. Right. You know, if we only could hear Abraham Lincoln or something, like yeah, that, yeah. right, rather than descriptions of his voice, then 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 our impressions are different. Certainly, I mean, here's an, a weird example, but it works. I, some of my students, many of you know, I used a book. I used many books by a, a philosopher named A.C. Grayling. Well, you read Grayling's books, and I tell you, he's a you know a grumpy, wonderfully humorous older Brit fellow who's known intern- worldwide as a, a tremendous scholar. But only when I put his uh, clip where he's on a couple of Colbert shows, you hear his voice. And you see this somewhat diminutive man with almost triangular hair. 
he speaks like this and <laughs> and and has a marvelous sense of humor laughs when Colbert and then hands it right back to him and I've had students tell me that 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 just changes their impression entirely mm-hmm. of who well there are the words there's you know we, we like to see people reenact Mark Twain or any number of other people because it's more than just the words. So I think right. there is, it embodies, well, embody would suggest that it puts some life to the, yeah. it, it beings, it so ontologically cre- recreates. Yeah. So there's language coming into the, the sort of discussion. Of yeah. it. So it's again, it's something that's on a sliding scale and there's no way of putting it in a box of saying this is narrative and this is some it's sort of to some extent you you have a relationship with somebody after they die but how much you know and that it all relates let's okay let's talk about historical um perspective what if have philosophers you know ancient philosophers philosophers did they talk about causes of death or how did they define death what what did they say about it the pre-socratics said that it's a cycle interestingly and and landed on the idea well death is physical decay so they recognized that you know, the changes are obvious and they said if you if you lived a, a virtuous or moral life then they they held that the water particularly Thales water was the ultimate source of life okay water was all things are made of water. It's just not far off yeah, in some ways. Uh, but that that if your soul was moral, or if use the word soul, but what you know that, that kind of thing, then it would be preserved through the divine spark. So the divine spark being light and heat, water, the soul was preserved and then would return. You might not recognize it, but return. So it's really one of the first Western concepts of the eternal return. Interesting. Yeah, I, I actually didn't know going into the show if they had any um, thought about causes of death or you know how they defined it. Just recently, it came out that somebody has a, a theory that um, Alexander the Great actually lived for about a week beyond his death. Um, because there was something similar where they he died, and historical accounts say that his body didn't start to decompose for a week after his death, and and they they think that he might have had a very rare neurological disorder, so that his breathing and his heartbeat became so shallow it was indetectable, but he's actually still alive. Rather like suspended animation yeah, or cryogenic freeze, or something he actually ended like up starving that. to death or dehydrating, and that was his. He would have died anyways, but that was right. the actual cause of. Well, that, that, which illustrates what you're talking about. Before we 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 are so numbers oriented, we are so technologically proficient at measuring every single thing. We think that to be able to iterate the second, mm. because we would like to know from officially it's done. Nine you know. billion cycles of cesium. Right. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. When when that might not be the case, and probably isn't mm. uh, philosophically uh, one of the things that I, that I love about the ancients uh, uh, Epicurus and then after him Lucretius who was a Roman who was a Roman military uh, well, had a lot of lot of lives but Lucretius uh, building on Epicurus essentially said why do we lament we we can't lament our pre birth not we were nothing and we're here then we're nothing again so what's all this howling and yowling and about our death when we already weren't extant we are but then we won't be again but then we may be again yeah. <laughs> you know and and are we are we are we howling and, and yelling and lamenting because of the pain it will cause our friends and our family or uh, and have raised all these kinds of questions that have followed us all the way since, or are we raging against, like Dylan Thomas, raging raging against the dying of the light because 
this is it and it's not fair and we and we haven't achieved everything that we could have achieved and then you have the existentialists like Sartre who say well the universe is meaningless anyway if, if whatever value accrues is because of the value you created if you didn't create value that's your own fault and then the light winks out and too bad for you <laughs> you know I mean I'm, I'm being grossly right yeah. <laughs> So, Simply simplifications, but anyway. So as far as the afterlife goes, did did the ancient philosophers, did afterlife always play into it? It sounds like maybe Lucretius had the sort of thought that maybe you just died and that was the end. And, and, and that was the end, yes. Or if afterlife is a cycle, then it's not a paradisical Eden-like... You just, you die and then you're born. Again. You're right, right. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So let's talk about how death relates to life, which we've been doing some, um, and we've kind of alluded to the this thought, which is the the point versus process. Um, what is what's been said about senescence and um, longevity, and when how how dying occurs, and and this sort of thing. Okay, so one of the most recent philosophers on this is Shelley Kagan, and among other things, Kagan says, the measure of life is what you accrue, the goods you accrued. <laughs> That's how we measure what, what our worth is. So that uh, death is awful because we don't have those goods anymore. <clears throat> well, all right, he wasn't talking about senescence, but Derek Parfit is when, when he says that we aren't an individual soul. We are just complicated chains of relationships. So he picks up on that ancient idea and just takes it all the way further. He said, well, right, as long as somebody has some kind of memory of you, you haven't died and you've gone. Now, we, we could add to that, because Parfit sometimes talks about technology, about the computer uh, thing. I mean, think of the internet almost nothing dies we know that once it's out there <laughs> it's out there yeah. <clears throat> and so in that sense the internet could be looked at as this uh, this isn't grim it's just bizarre this this accretion of every life that's ever touched it yeah that's that's really interesting um the class i'm taking right now is about um educational technology and the the module that I was working on this week was about ethics in educational technology. And the, the interesting thing is in the, the literature, the scientific literature and some of the um, data that's been collected, educational technologists don't think about ethics. <laughs> they, don't, they don't think about, um, I mean, they think about it from, in many cases, um, in the aspect of who has access, you know, is there equal access? Um, is there, you know, and, and that sort of thing, but they don't think about how the technology yeah, affects people. And, and as we talked about, you know, early in the show here, I think the sense we're at, we're not at the dawn of, of technology, but if you zoom out a little bit, we really are. We're about 15 years, 20 years into it. And we don't know how that's going to extrapolate out over decades or centuries and so it changes something you know how those relationships work like you said rather than having a, a fade into obscurity based on text getting lost or anecdotal accounts getting um scrambled as people age and that sort of thing instead you'll have a crystal clear frozen um record of of somebody's life you right. know and how that changes that narrative or personal death process has sort of interesting implications when you look into the, the far future of it. It, it does. It's, so it's, it's blurry. And, and I rather, I, I, like, I, I like reading Derek Parfit. He's uh, don't necessarily, you know, one doesn't have to agree with everything to, to uh, look at the ideas and, and well, technology, you, you mentioned this, I think when we were doing our, our flash kind of discussion a little earlier, it's projected by, well, 
people like Elon Musk and not him, but the people who work for him, that in less, in less than 40 years, it may well be possible with algorithms and AI in development that before you die, you can upload your consciousness so that it is iterated into um, the internet or <clears throat> hard drive. And science fiction has done this a lot, but, but now if we're talking about it, it might even be possible. First, the, the real interesting questions about death is, well, would you do that? Would you upload your consciousness so that you no longer can feel or see? We'll start from that because then we can talk about avatar-like bodies and so on. But to see, to see or to feel, but but you can be aware and aware to the the extent that whatever your memories were, however your consciousness is, might be might be captured in the machine. And as long as somebody keeps remembering to re-upload you or copy you somewhere else, <laughs> yeah, it's like phones with photographs, right? We have this wonderful photographs. The phone died. We didn't upload them. We didn't keep them on the SIM chip. That's it. It's a, it's a very anticlimactic death. It somebody is. forgets the SIM. <laughs> but, but, but that which allows us to laugh. I mean, you know, what do people do at funerals? They tell stories. People weep, of course, and they miss, and they ache, and they hurt, and it's and it's the whole range as it as it should be. But so often people desperately seek to find laughter in the face of whatever seeming ending this is. Some people choose not to have open caskets. They don't want to be seen as the inanimate. They want to be remembered as all those other things. That's the psychological thing. Uh, so how all the rituals uh, accrue to death is just as fascinating as the life that was lived. Yeah, so let's let's segue then into immortality because we've been hinting at it a little bit technologically, and I think that that's that's an interesting thing because we're essentially Elon Musk is talking about becoming now uh, um, not not fin taking our phenomenal experiences and putting them into a now nominal sort of thing. Um, and that has interesting implications. Uh, what's funny about that to me is Elon Musk is one of the most outspoken critics of AI. AI is dangerous and all this stuff. Yes. But the the sort of path that he's laid out plays into a lot of science fiction scenarios. Yes. Let's 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 integrate with the AI. Like he's essentially putting us into the Matrix scenario. Or, or saying it's going to happen whether I want to or not. He's yeah. taking our consciousness and putting yeah, it. Yeah, taking it out of the body and putting it into and, it. And I won't blame poor Elon for that. If he looks at his technology, because it's not just him, right? He's not the only one who's working on this. Google's working on this. Other, you know, so, but yes, if, if, if you, but if you look at it and you say, just because we might be able to do this, I'm not so sure that this is right. a good idea, but how can we be sure? Because we've never done it. Yeah. So you're gonna have the people saying, "Sure, upload me," because why not? <laughs> yeah. Now, okay, and that seems like it's probably going to be the most realistic avenue to immortality. But let's look at the let's look at the alternatives. Let's talk about physical immortality. Okay. So, you know, I've, I'm starting to get to the age where. I have to eat a little bit better. I have to work out a little bit harder. I see some gray, gray hairs in the mirror, you know, and uh, these are all these are all things that, you know, it happens to everybody. And, and lots of people think of it as getting older. But really, it's it's the death process. It's starting, you know, because we think of it as a point in time, but it's really not a point in time. It's a, it's a process. And as we've pointed out at the beginning of the show, pinpointing when the process starts and ends is a bit murky. Yes, yes. But, um, you know, and some people would go as far as to say you start dying the moment you're born. I'm going to, I'm going to insert something with that because I won't name names, but I've got one of my students who is also a military veteran, um, said to me recently that, um, death is his oldest friend because in some sense he was in it before he was born and the moment you're born then you're starting to get there and there's always a possibility in the work he was doing and then and then 
obviously it's coming. And he said, I don't fear that. It's because it's the oldest thing that we know. Hmm. Didn't want to interrupt you with that, but yeah. I just thought it was an interesting thought that he'd. Yeah, I think that everybody has a very different and very complicated relationship with the thought of, of dying. Um, and I'm not so sure that that's true. I think that, I think there's a, there's a growth process, but I think that that process, even that is, is pretty complicated. You know, there's some things where, okay, well, you're as neuro neurologically, um, the death process probably starts when you're about two, you gain, you have this huge explosion of neuron growth and then it all prunes back. Now you still have things that grow and things that get pruned throughout your life. That's learning and that's the, the brain adaptation. But in terms of growth, overall growth, well, usually somewhere around two years old is well, that's that you've reached your peak number of neurons. Whereas um, skeletally, about 25, the bones in your chest and in your skull become switch from cartilage to bone. Um, you know, about 18, you have hormone peaks and that sort of, so there's, there's different points in time where you peak. So I, I, I don't really buy into the, you start dying the moment you're born sort of thing, phys physiologically, mm -hmm. physiologically, but, but the process starts very soon, probably somewhere in the mid twenties, any, pro any physiological process across the board is starting to decline no matter how gradually, um, now there's there's ways of extending it naturally or otherwise some people you know diet exercise sleep um yeah, flossing your teeth yeah yeah flossing your teeth there's a big heart disease and all kinds of stuff can can go so let's let's talk about that a little bit philosophically medically um what sort of things are going on both on the natural front that people can do, but also what what sort of things are being floated out there as ways of extending life um, physically? Well, I just read an article about a gentleman who's, who's, who's aiming at being 145 years old, and he's doing that by um, constantly having, because he's very wealthy, constantly stem having stem cells. Bone marrow. From, right, right. So we, and, and, and the Human Genome Project has has and still continues to lead, lead us to more and more knowledge about the map of ourselves the google map again so there we and and so we know that there's uh uh there's a there's a, a concept in science called uh plytropics uh is, I, I didn't pronounce that properly but it's it says that there you know you have two uh, if not opposite then very different uh, effects to one cause and it, and, and for DNA. So, so if the DNA makes a choice to either, uh, once you replicate, then you are no longer of any particular use, then the decay and the senescence happens. So what if you can, uh, key the DNA to stop the natural decay? And there's discussion about this. It may be possible, not within the next few decades, but let's say 100 years, 200 years, to recode the DNA so it stops our decay. It's, it's entirely possible. It's within medical uh, theory now. And I think they've done some experiences with like um, ringworms and that sort of thing doing it. And I think that they've gotten to the point where they can like triple lifespan they still can't keep them alive forever because it's a really complicated thing and i i think one of the biggest problems that it comes down to is um ultraviolet radiation from the sun like essentially because there's a giant ball of radiation out there that keeps us alive it also causes micro damage to your cells right. the longer you live it it adds up and it adds up and eventually it breaks your two DNA. different effects yeah, from the same vital cause. So it's poetic in a way. It is, isn't it? And and and, and there, well, then and then that makes me think back to Montaigne, the essayist, who, who among other things, said we need death. That in order for us to understand that we shouldn't be wasting our time, uh, that we have because we have a mortal limited amount of finite amount of time, then death gives us the urge to do what we can while we. 
Yeah. All right. So now we've got these, this branching though, right? So if we upload our consciousness, if we're able to do that, we have to decide whether we really would do that. A, do we have the means and does it go for everybody or is it just for people who have the capitalistic means? Mm-hmm. Um, or let's, let's say you have a choice. I can continue my physical body for a couple hundred years. So maybe not immortal, but mm-hmm. oh, doesn't necessarily guarantee the consciousness is going to stay together, but you know, maybe the physical body. I can be 25 years old for 200 years. Or I can be immortal without having physical senescence at all inside of a box. Or, I, you know, and I keep saying, we keep saying box, it's sort of a bad pun on death, but you can't put it in the box because it just keeps going. But what happens if we we are uploaded into the cloud, whatever that metaphor means. Uh, we're not going to be the same if our minds are limited to just the memories that we had that were uploaded. Hmm. Then we're sort of a rerun. Right. If if the possibility exists, if we're fused with AI of some kind or algorithmic fusion so that we can actually continue to think, then there is kind of a, a mind immortality, but that but philosoph- but philosophers going somewhat back would say, well, the mind may not stop even though the body does, and then that takes us back to some of the religious things where whatever our soul is, it's not something we see. Yeah, and, and honestly, thinking about it, it doesn't seem like the the initial thought seems a little bit shocking but i actually don't think it would be that bad and i'll tell you why it's because humans have the creative ability to imagine things that they don't experience as our mini episode that we recorded before this shows we can imagine there being nothing even though we've never experienced nothing so if you get uploaded into a box you have all of the um, phenomenological memories of your life, but you don't have any past that point. But if you have a way of obtaining information, um, you know, you can read Google News. Maybe you can't see or hear or know um, physically what's happening in the world, but those prior experiences that have been uploaded would allow you to creatively imagine it. If they can model your brain that if way. Mother, and, 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 man, maybe you can see out of every camera simultaneously across the planet. Yeah. Maybe you can have visual omniscience through mm-hmm. all the technology that we have. This is where science fiction has done so much with this. Yeah. You know, even, even a TV show like The Person of Interest, where there's an artificial intelligence that is battling with another artificial intelligence for moral superiority in the planet uh do we become that do we the moment we have access to all of this stuff does our consciousness become a, 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 a supra consciousness a collective consciousness mm. you know it, so and maybe it does anyway you know i just i, I just got done reading this marvelous science fiction story which uh, aliens who come to Earth. Uh, it's a whole anthology of these things. Um, it was sort of a detective story and so on. But the, but the upshot of, of of it is from a from a, a an ontological viewpoint is that the aliens uh, have the assurance through their technology that when one dies, uh, one's self becomes part of dark matter and that's why the universe is continuing to expand because all of the life that has passed on is pushing the universe outwards so that everything the being exists just not physically and they call it dark heaven (laughs) and so (laughs) we want to keep existing that's a basically human thing right yeah except that people at certain points say i mean uh, our elders sometimes say i've done it i'm done i've I'm done with all of this. And that may be because of the pain. That may be because of the emotional loss of so many others. It may be all kinds of things. Um, I want to be done. Okay. So if, and I've, I've had people in my life say this, and I, you know, it's, you have to acknowledge that. You have to honor that. Except that we, we don't. We make people keep going until God decides. 
Can't, can't play God after all. Although we do it with our animals. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be done. Oh, okay. You're 91, you're 95, whatever you are, you're basically maybe not even being able to handle your own just physical capacities. You have, you, you don't want to see things anymore. You say, I want to rest. Well, that's very nice, but that's, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's funny looking at how different people think about death and how people think about it throughout their life. Like you brought up the quote about how, um, you know, death is necessary to give life some meaning, some yeah, impetus, you know, and you think about it and you look at young people and lots of times love the, the most potential, but because of that lack of familiarity, one of a couple things can really happen. Either some of that potential early on gets wasted because there's this sense of, well, I've got time. Or something is accomplished, but it's accomplished because extreme risks were taken because there isn't a proper fear of um consequences yes. whether they are whether it's physical death or whether it's financial ruin whatever the case is they just go out and do this crazy thing and it works out and you know then and, and it might be life-changing and you right. talked about that uh, a couple of weeks ago and you know you you hear the story you hear the stories about it not working out but lots of times you hear that story and then it fades. But the stories that stick are the ones that are the successes. And then you get farther on into life. And I think that the farther on you get and the more experience you have with death, the more that causes people to become more conservative. I think that, I think that is a driving force with a lot of decisions. And again, whether it's physical death or consequences that could lead to ultimately physical um, discomfort or disadvantage there's more of a conservative um, sort of approach but then when you get to the end of life there's that there is that branching out again I think where you see some people who rage against the dying of the light and there's other people that come to accept where they're at and you know what, what are the processes that cause people to get to those kind of different points you know it's a fascinating question because it's psychological it's it's sociological, it's, it's family dynamics, it's social ritual, uh, the pressures of what you think you're supposed to feel at a certain point in your life, it's, uh, and, and what you want to believe. And, and I don't say that lightly, because what you want to believe may be what you were taught to believe, or, or, or it may in fact have something to do with what happens next, if something happens next. So... This is a good segue into the next section, which is awareness. What does consciousness of death say about being human? And, you know, thinking about that, what, what does it say? Because if you, my, my favorite thought experiment is whenever I think about an aspect of being human, I like to think about um, animals. And what does an animal have in analogous experience to a human and it's always hard to say because they have no way of communicating so you have to base it solely on observation um, and that sort of thing but I mean they do communicate but they do it not through grammatical right right, right? I mean we look at dogs eyes and we think we know what they want mm. and sometimes we guess especially when they're standing next to the door and then suddenly whack their tail against the door that we think they want to go out and we're probably right <laughs> So it seems like animals probably do have some sort of conceptualization of death. You do see, um, especially with elephants and that sort of thing, there's some mourning um, or there's some, if, if there's a loss in more family or pack oriented sort of things, you see some sort of reactions. I have to tell you something about this because it just reminded me of something I saw three years ago, I believe it was, coming back from a rehearsal, late-night rehearsal over at uh, the college in Batavia. And it was winter, and I was coming down the hill off East Road into Wyoming. And something caught my something caught my eye, flashed up in front of me very low. And there was nobody behind me. I slowed down, 
And then I noticed this movement in front. And so I, I, I looked behind me, nobody back. I put on my four ways and I stopped for a moment and I was astonished because there was a raccoon pulling, working so hard to pull another raccoon, seemingly dead raccoon, off the road. I had never seen anything like this, right? And, and it was stunning to me. I kept looking, nobody's coming down the hill. And so I wasn't going to startle it. It needed to pull that, its other, so, its fellow being off the road for whatever reason. And when they got done, then I, I moved on. And the thing was looking at me and then it, and then it pulled the other raccoon into the dish and I don't know what happened. but. And I, uh, one of my uh, colleagues at work said, well, it's probably uh, gathering its food. It's dead raccoon, it would be food. It could, okay, maybe. Yeah. That's not to say that it still didn't value. That's not to say that it didn't recognize. Some There was some recognition of death and life in that little vignette. Right. Um, and of course, my mind was saying, do they have awareness? Is this Does this raccoon... Did it feel so much for the other one that it didn't want it to get further damaged out there? Maybe it was, it just wanted to consume it. And we can put all kinds of narrative with it. As you just said, we don't know, but it, something was going on there. Right. So we, we see consciousness and, and especially um, something that a lot of people don't have experience with is, you know, seeing something um, on the verge of death. And a lot of people who have hunted or have done that sort of thing, you see it. If if you, it's very important to get a clean shot on something because if you don't, it a death isn't going to be fast. Oh, yes. And a slow death is is really um, that's something that's life changing. If you see something suffer, it changes the way you you feel and think about things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so animals appear to have some sort of thought about it. But how does so how does that how does that change for humans? How does consciousness, awareness of death, our ability we, we can't say whether or not animals know what happens or think about what happened after they're dead or any of these sort of things. Humans do. Um, what does that say about being human? I think it says that we fear and are fascinated at the same time by the unknown. We want to know everything. And that's that's a marvelous capacity because it keeps our curiosity, it, it helps us stretch into the universe, it helps us be a larger part of things. But we can also, it's, it's odd and it doesn't work for everybody, but I think there's comfort in it. I mean, there's I'm not going to sit here and say I find a comfort in the thought of death. No, thank you. When it comes, it comes. I hope it's a good one. I hope it's, you know, not terrible for everybody else around me because for me, I, when I'm done, I won't know that. I, I, I subscribe to that. unless If there's a, a, another life so-called past this one, I don't know whether I'll be aware of how it was. I... I that doesn't bother me to think about that. It, it makes me want to, at, when I have my best moments, be attentive to what is now, to take opportunities where they are, to to learn, to grow, all the things we've talked about before. But well, I'm a human being, I waste time too, <laughs> you know. And but we don't sit around all the time thinking about it. It's it can be really, it can lead one down a very uh, grim rabbit hole if you become so focused on it you know there's that old saying that a a, a a person can die a thousand times before he dies if he worries thinks about it all the time there are all kinds of versions of that saying but what could one have been doing instead of worrying about the inevitable uh probably more if not productive i don't like that word it's a capitalistic word but uh, creative or meaningful to whatever one wants to have meaning there's far too much to do here right and i think that's that gets at the heart of this problem and every other problem in philosophy is the, the categorization issue you know where we want to categorize what happens after death 
what death means, all these things. And, and we want to categorize what it means to have a good life to determine whether or not we're ready to die or what makes a good death and all these things. But there is no, um, there is no guidebook. And, and that's what religions provide for people and that sort of thing. But, um, but you know, but, know. but when you're making your day to day choices, when I'm deciding, um, you know, for instance, well, do I want to, should I text Norm and ask him if he wants to produce a philosophy podcast or would I be better off using my Saturday mornings to pick up a second job or to get ahead on schoolwork or to spend time with my family or do these different things? There's no guidebook for that. You're just constantly making decisions every, every minute of the day to try to, um, to try to build an advantage of some kind and, and what your idea of advantage is determines how you make those decisions. Yes, you know? how you want to spend your time is the ultimate, I think, the ultimate agency. Uh, whether you're an existentialist or you're, you're heavily religious or where, whatever, wherever you are on the scale, I choose to do this now because I want. And, and, you know, and, and if you text me and say, I need, a, I need a break for four weeks. I want to spend some time with my family. I want to write some music and so on. And I would, I would instantly say, yeah, cool. I get it. And, and, and then we'll get back as soon as we do because there's that, there's that creative uh, urge that then says, okay, but there's also other needs. Right. You know, right. So we, we, but we recognize that. And we, if we recognize it and we act on it, then we are living in that sort of top, toward the top of the Maslow hierarchy, hmm. uh, at least for moments at a time. Um, yeah. So it, it's, we're tying in all of our previous episodes again, but I think that we're getting at the awareness of death and how that consciousness talks about being human because what we're looking at is essentially saying death is, is a driving impetus and it creates a sort of hierarchical um, sort of structure. We're saying, well, because some day in the future we will die, that makes our time of a high priority and our sense of self determines how we spend that time and our sense of self is determined by uh, how we metaphysically, ontologically, epistemologically aesthetically perceive things and how we're putting all of these things together and it all it all sort of creates your life that's that's your life in a nutshell and it comes back to that quote that you said you know death gives some meaning to life because it's finite it is finite. and so how how would that affect it if we lived 300 years as opposed to 80 would we spend our time differently yes, yes. would we would our sense of self and how we um view things developed it then i'd have no problem norm you know what i need 10 years off from <laughs> you know what I'll, I'll, we'll come back in 10 years and revisit. but yeah, exactly but yeah. that but you know that comes into um the fact that we don't you don't know when death's gonna happen and so no, you're it, it that adds a gambling aspect into it you know now you have all of these things but and i think that many of us plan i think we plan with a clock in our head you know, I look at family history. I look at my lifestyle choices, mm -hmm. the calculated risks you choose to take, and you think, I have this much time. But it's really an illusion because every time you get in your car and drive on an icy road, yeah. you don't know what those percentages are. You, you know, you can think, well, if I drive 40 miles an hour on these road conditions, then I, I'm probably safe. Yeah, but a patch of black ice or wind blowing, so uh, you know, some snow up, it all changes in an instant. You know? It does. But then we have that being human doesn't mean we're perfect at this, but being human means we have the capacity. If we lose it, we hope we have others through counseling or whatever that helps us find that, that balance again so that we don't drive around fretting about the ice and thinking about the, the quasar zapping us with gamma radiation and instant and, and you know because if you if one thought about all that stuff we'd have to how could we not be paralyzed and then you're already dead and then you're already dead you because your mind stops right. doing anything other than just cycling mm -hmm. you know? yeah so yeah that's a good discussion of of awareness um let's talk about some of the taboos that go along with death there's there's differences in superstitions and how respects are paid and mythology of 
about death and this is across cultures but there's there's similarities and there's differences as well um is there any philosophical background into where some of these come from yes there there is and 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 partly the philosophy this is where philosophy crosses paths with uh, spiritualism or or religions across the planet and with anthropology and how things are done. So, for instance, there, there's there's a culture um, on this globe of ours that uh, in which it is uh, not only acceptable but honorable to uh, kill one's father when he is in what we would call early middle age at the at the peak of his hunting uh, uh, and contributing to society capacities, and then consume part of him. And people uh, you know, in the West would look at this and say, "What, yeah. <laughs> right?" And 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 I, I've read about this a, a number of times because I like to bring it up into ethics class because, well, that that's just abhorrent. That's just terrible. We can't understand this culture at all. And then the process of philosophy, you have to ask, "Well, why?" why exactly. Right. What, what is it about the father? Mm-hmm. Well, they're honoring the father by sending him into the next world. At his hunting and physical best from their viewpoint, so that he can flourish in the next world. And to consume the father is to take part of him into oneself and integrate him into you. Now, no, we wouldn't, you know, <laughs> subscribe to that as, oh, let's start practicing this. But but it, but the fact that we as, as human beings could look at that, as you say, ask the questions. Don't sit in judgment. Don't don't. Probably you're not going to want to move and become part of the culture. They wouldn't let you anyway. But but say all right. So what is this uh, saying uh, about us? So there's that kind of ritual. There's there's our ritual. Well, let's see. People can be cremated, the ashes kept or spread as or people. Cremated put of you know the actor who had um, unfortunately Jimmy Doohan who played Scotty in Star Trek and he he had Alzheimer's at, at the end of his life but but his wish was to be put in there there's a company that will put your ashes into a, a little vial and it's uh, fired into a rocket into space with many 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 other little vials and your dust becomes part of space faster than it might have otherwise. We are all star stuff, some poets say, and 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 the ancients didn't, you know, they talked about atomism, but now we look at it and say, well, we're all composed of the same elements. We are composed of the same elements as stars, and and so the so the rituals that we, what do we do with a, what do we have done with ourselves after, uh, with that physical case. Do we put it in a box? Do we put it in a vial? Do we reduce it to ashes and, and put it in a vial? Do we scatter it to the winds? Do we uh, consume, you know, do we? But all these things are somehow meant to put closure to the last wishes of the being uh, if those wishes were asked. Uh, sometimes people... I know because of things people have told me again, and whether they're intense battlefield stories or they're just intense stories of friendships. People ask people to do something remarkably uh, edgy in the sense of what society would allow in terms of how to dispose of a body. Yeah, and I think that that gets into, um, you know, I think it's the thought process behind doing what you're doing so that initial story you brought up of you know murdering a father at the peak of his prime and eating him and eating him yeah exactly murdering and eating you know it sounds it sounds so terrible but we like when you explain the thought process behind what they're doing you realize okay well this is something that's it's based on honor it's based on a coming of age for a son um all of these different things but we still and, embrace it. Right. Or um, I think there's a, I want to say it's Zoroastrian culture somewhere in the Middle East where they, they just have a, a giant building and people die. They drag them out there and throw them in a pile and vultures come and eat them. And that's just how they deal with it. And again, to some people, this seems extremely shocking. Me personally, I, you know, I think that 
a lot of people who have thought about death some. You know, if I was on my deathbed and I, I asked somebody to do something and, uh, you know, it was very important to me and I, I asked them and then I died and they decided not to do it and they threw my body in a dumpster and left. <laughs> I don't care because I'm dead. <laughs> you know, like at, the, at that point. <laughs> or or do you come back and haunt them afterward right, because right. they're, so, they're going to be wondering about that. Right. So <laughs> it all comes down to your how you view death, how you view the afterlife. And your responsibilities. To, to, right. Uh, right. To, there's the ethics. Mm. Do I have a duty to do what I said I would do even though the person is gone? Right. And so I would I, yes, if, if my friend was on his deathbed and he asked me to do something, I would, I would do whatever he asked, but would I do it because I was afraid of being haunted? No, I would do it because it was based off of how, when I knew him in so life. It's a combination would I throw him in a dumpster? No, no, but I would, I wouldn't do that out of respect. But for me personally, the way I'm, I'm looking at it is that, well, if I'm no longer in my body, then I don't care how it's, I don't really care how it's treated anymore because I'm no longer there, you know? And Although you might care how it was treated if it was going to be hurtful to other people who are still around. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. So it's, it's all, it's all. See there. And this comes into family things. So some family, so someone wants to be cremated. They've expressed that wish, but strong elements in that family say no, because if that happens, you don't, Let's say an evangelical, there are branches of evangelical religion which say no, because then you can't be risen afterward. Right. You can't be cremated. So the wish is contravened by, and probably the person doesn't, because if you're gone, you're gone. And even if you're in a spiritual sense, even if you're becoming star stuff, it's probably much more interesting to be floating out in space, looking at all that stuff through black, you know, as black energy, dark energy. Uh, that's much bigger than, well, what are you doing with my body? No, you probably don't care at that point, right. as you say. So I think that when we're talking about, you know, taboos and superstitions and respect and stuff, really, you got to put yourself in the shoes of, um, everybody it's it's sort of a meta analysis you have to look at the person who's dying and their wishes and thoughts and perspectives on it their family the people around them the cultural context all these different things and that kind of gives you an idea of how the things develop and why they're important or why maybe they're not important but they, they keep They're up the show of living. yes yes and, and that goes back to the, the uh, back to lucretius again why should it I've, i'm not here i'm here then i'm not here again right you know so okay but the living one to know they the living one who they're the ones who are hurting all right so let's let's talk about the afterlife um there's plenty of religious traditions that talk about the afterlife. What are some of those? What are some of those thoughts? Is there um, a lot of different ideas, or they gen generally tend to be something similar? I think the similarity is in the idea that there's something after. Right. <laughs> I think that's probably where it ends mostly, uh, because you can take various traditions. So. And it, I, we we don't have time to go granular for all the different kinds, but but broadly speaking, the the kind where you you've gained release, you found the mansion on the hilltop where you, you're going to either sing uh, praises of God forevermore, or some other being, or you are in a, 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 a you have achieved a place where you are just in a quietness. Let's say a contemplative quietness, or you didn't do badly. <laughs> you learned some things, or you forgot to learn some things, and so then you're cast back into it again, and round and round it goes. And you hope on the carousel eventually you get to a place where you can achieve the contemplative quietness, or the or the non-being, the joy of non-being itself. Back to what we were talking about: not the sheer joy of utter capital and nothing. Right. That we've never experienced, or you die and you and you and you go into a, a place where, uh, if you died honorably, living like a warrior, then you're going to 
uh, be in a world where you you fight and kill. I'm thinking of the old Norse. <laughs> if 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 you, you you feast like crazy, and then you go out in the battlefield, kill like crazy. Then the bodies all get back up again, go back to Valhalla, and 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 eat like crazy. And so that's sort of a talk about a rewind replay just loop. I, you know, that's until the end of time and uh, Ragnarok. At which point you are fighting the greatest battle of all. You're getting totally decimated, and you're gone. But then other versions of you emerge. And so again, it's there, so it's it's there's a linearity. Christianity is the first religion really that that broke the cycles of most spiritual traditions in one way or another, whether Aboriginal uh, in uh, Australia or or United States or so-called or Canada, whatever. You have this cycle of life. Then, then the arrow of time comes in with the linearity of the Christianity. So here's where it begins. Here's how it ends. No cycle. Mm. Um, that's really the breakdown, I think. Interesting. Um, do you think that there's there's a physiological basis for people to think there's an afterlife, or do you think it's all based off of um, consciousness, awareness, thought? The, I'll, I'll tell you where I'm going with this, yeah. which is. Um, I don't know if you have you read up much on DMT, the chemical substance. No. DMT, it's an extremely long medical word that I can't pronounce, so I won't bother. But it's it's a chemical that the body produces naturally. It's also an illicit substance that you can take, but we're not going to go into that because not only is it not super relevant to the discussion, but also I don't even know if the podcast censors if we can talk about illicit right, substances right. so <laughs> without <laughs> labeling it as an explicit podcast. But okay. <laughs> suffice it to say, it's a chemical that's produced in the brain. It's a psychoactive chemical. Um, and they're not exactly sure what the purpose is for it. They don't know what it does on a day-to-day basis, but the body produces it in very small amounts, smaller than anything that um, can produce a psychoactive response. What they found is that during death, the brain dumps all of it into into the body. Yes. And so what happens is then you have anecdotally, because there's not really a way of studying this, but so the brain dumps all the DMT and they know that much. And what they've seen from the very few studies that they've done with DMT, because it's not ethical to do these kind of studies anymore, is... um responses to dmt tend to all follow the same sort of template where the person feels very calm there's an almost an eternal sense of time time stops um they've they can reflect on their whole life and they are approached by um the official term is machine elves these these Creatures that are variously described as angels or aliens or machines come and greet them and say, welcome, you've, you've made it, here you are. And you look at the language aspect of society when we talk about your life flashing before your eyes when you almost have a near-death experience or an out-of-body experience. And, and you look at how the DMT experiences and studies correlate with ideas of the afterlife. And it makes you start to wonder if there's a physiological or, you know, psychochemical basis for where some of these stories come from. That's a really, really interesting. I'm going to read about this. Yeah. But, I, but, but what you've just laid out uh, anecdotally is would suggest, could be suggestive of a number of things. One being that... Uh, it's an evolutionary anodyne to the ending experience so that your your body shoots endorphins <laughs> and it you know, fills you with endorphins at the right moment when you're running or kickboxing or whatever and 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 people get the great joy from that and motivation and so on okay well so maybe evolutionarily we'd say let's make the end 
as as good as we can. It sort of makes sense. Might be a mechanism for that, but but then it it might indicate that one could say that uh, perhaps that such a chemical in the body uh, might enhance perception of a kind, and so or or enhance one's narrative abilities to create that which one wishes to see because if if you're talking about aliens machines or angels you know they aren't the same thing and so then you know this takes me to star trek again but this takes me to one of the the movies where you know there's a, there's a thing called the nexus flipping around the galaxy who knows it's totally not scientific but uh and 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 if you fall into the nexus, uh, everyone, uh, you've died to everyone, but uh, whatever you want to happen, happens. I think it's the most interesting afterlife kind of thing that one could imagine. So, because it, it removes the, and, and so what you just described takes me to this because it sort of, it removes the necessity. I don't need to have you or any other fellow human being believe anything about the end other than what you want to believe. It's none of my business. I'm fascinated by it, but I I have no no business in trying to tell you how it should be. That would be a moralistic imperative that shouldn't exist. So the narrative of the machines or the aliens or the, or the angels, whatever one sees, people talk about the light that they see or having the out-of-body experience and 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 one doesn't necessarily doubt the anecdotal capacities of those of those things but that doesn't prove anything except the stated perceptions have been uh, clarified and asserted right it's because people say oh, i've seen a, i've seen a, seen a light at the end of a tunnel okay perhaps uh, you you saw yourself seeing a light, but what that means, there's no, it can't, there can be no certainty of that. Yeah, it's interesting because I think that you know, like we were talking about, um, you know, taboos and superstitions, and and how people think about death is based off of a meta analysis of their how they view time and their sense of self and how they interpret the world. Yes. And it sounds like in the final moments of death, all of those things come back in and. You know, yeah, that's that's how it's really interpreted. That, yeah. So I, I think this was great. I think it was a good conversation. It wasn't doom and gloom. It was a very interesting look at um, a process that is, you know, happens to everybody. So thank you for listening to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. Recording and production are provided by me, Joel Bouchard, and the song featured in the show is Questions off my album Jaguars, which you can find on Spotify or anywhere MP3s are sold. Until next time, keep pondering.